Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. This week, we have the artist Brian Mark Taylor, who has won numerous awards at the nation's most prestigious plein air invitationals and has had work shown in museums across the country, including the recent exhibition Saints at Devil Gate, currently on view at the Church History Museum in Salt Lake City. Taylor has been featured in Fine Art Connoisseur, Plain Air, Southwest Art, American Art Collector, and American Artist Workshop magazines. He's a sought-after teacher and lecturer and has taught courses around the country, including the Academy of Art University, Pixar, and Scottsdale Artist School. We're very happy to have you here today. Thanks for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. So for the work that we've cho- you've chosen that we're going to start our discussion with, um, well, tell us about it. What is it? So it's a, a piece uh, by an artist named William Bliss Baker, and it's a, a painting or an artist that I don't believe, unless you uh, are a professor at BYU, Brigham Young University, you're, you're not going to know about the painting probably. Yeah. But, uh, and, and that's because, and you'll probably get into this, uh, we'll, we'll learn later why he's not well-known artist. But uh, really, um, this piece uh, is called Fallen Monarchs, and it's, just, it's a beautiful uh, landscape scene in the tradition of the Hudson River School, uh, that time period, although it's, it's a little bit more of an intimate view instead of the big grand view. Uh, it's a, of a grove of, of trees. You're kind of within the grove of trees. Within, uh, size-wise, and I remember being in front of this several times down, down at BYU, um, it's it's a good size, but it's not enormous Correct. either. Right. And that view, um, you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of um, a professor that I had at, uh, at, uh, at the, she was from the Warburg in, in London, and she said, we need to bring back the term boskage, which was a 17th century Dutch term. That actually, it's you know, Latin, too. In Spanish, the word for forest is bosque, and it's close in almost every Latin-based language, for a kind of art. We have landscapes. We've got seascapes. Maybe we'd have more interiors of forests, which are so rich like this one, if we just started using the term boskage more often <laughs> on a more regular let's basis. Let's do it. Let's hashtag it. Though, though everybody would wonder, and you'd have to always explain what a boskage is. It, we, we should say, um, uh, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll jump in and say a little bit about who he Absolutely, was yeah. and how this got into the collection. So he, was, um, he began his studies at the National Academy of Design, which was newly formed. Uh, most of the artists that were there had been trained in Europe, like Bierstadt, who had studied in Munich, and and uh, Enoch Wood Perry, who had studied in Munich and at the Ecole de Beaux Arts in Paris. Um, and these were the first generations, a generation of really professional artists, all trained in Europe. Helped found and foment the Hudson River School. He goes to to uh, this Baker goes to it and gets involved and is one of the rising star students, and he dies at the age of twenty six. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? And there's a New York Times article. You just find it on the Wikipedia page. You don't even have to delve in very far. That says that um, they knew immediately that he was he was the greatest of his generation, potentially. And when they lost him, 
it was potentially one of the greatest artistic losses of a generation was the comment made in the in the New York Times. He uh, and this was considered by many to be his greatest work. I just assumed that it had come through Mahan Ray Young, who had donated or most of his collection came to BYU from his connection to the Weirs and mm-hmm. Hudson River School Artists. But it was bought by a pediatrician in uh, who went to Philadelphia to study, bought it while he was back east, moved to Utah and donated it. Wow. That's how I found out. That, that's that's at least what I was able to find out. But 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 so going back to this idea of of him being somewhat influenced by the Hudson River School movement. Um, is that something that in your own work is is uh, has this generation of artists influenced you? Uh, to some degree. How yes. do you relate yourself to them? Yeah. Um, well, so with the Hudson River School, there's a certain amount of, uh, I guess, detail that is not something that I I particularly subscribe to or a certain. Um, uh, although in this particular piece, I think it's so beautifully handled. It has a balance, I think, that is rare in any other landscape painter that I've ever been aware of. I mean, he was really on to something in my view. Hmm. Uh, so what you know, was he on to? What was he on to? Yes. Well, he had, uh, if you look at that, this particular piece, his understanding and sensitivity to the quality of the air in the painting is extraordinary. Uh, and the quality of the light in a way that kind of foreshadows um, uh, later down the road, you know, the Impressionists and things like that that we're interested in. It's all about the light and all about the color. Right. He's still holding on to a lot of the, the needs for, you know, intense detail to create um, such uh, an, uh, a faithful rendition of the landscape that was um, kind of demanded at that time because there was no other competition. There was no, you know, the photography wasn't quite there. And, and um, you know, people would buy tickets to see one of these Hudson River School paintings like it was a movie. Uh, and so that, that, those were kinds of the, the kind of needs that... Uh, it was almost the idea of it was, it was documentation rather than... The, exactly, yeah. And artistry. I mean, it's not entirely yeah. um, documentation. But, I mean, you... Somebody who I think we're both familiar with, the artist Jacob Collins, who is in New York, that has both a figurative artist, but has moved more and more into landscape work and founded a new Hudson River School movement. He used to talk about one of the things he admired is that the Hudson River School artist would never put a tree that belongs at 10,000 feet at 5,000 feet. Sure. And so there's right. this fidelity. Exactly. To it's almost as if they're. They're geologists, they're naturalists, they're botanists, they're they're uh, meteorologists, and they capture every one of these elements. And if I'm understanding what you're what you're saying, yeah, he got that with the accuracy in this work, right? But there's another level of artistry that isn't so, solely a scientific approach. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. And what what is that? That's the non that's that's the non science that part. About. That's the yeah. the, that's the departure a little bit. Yeah. Exactly. So if you look at that painting in particular, he's manipulated uh, the atmosphere. He's pushed it further than it actually occurs in nature. And he's done this to give it, uh, in, in my view, 
uh, I saw, saw in it as a young student at BYU this spiritual dimension to it. Hmm. Um, and uh, George Innes definitely was an artist that pushed that kind of thing way further. Uh, but of course, he's he's this young man. I mean, he's still 26, which is amazing. I often see, uh, at least when I taught at the Academy of Art University, very accomplished, you know, head painters, and maybe they could do a figure pretty darn well. Uh, but to see a very mature landscape painter at a very young age is is very rare. Is there something about landscape that demands that that makes that different than other work? I think so because there's a lot that you can't control. And there's so much variety. So, for instance, uh, a painter can control everything in, in a studio environment, the lighting. So they're dealing with the same type of light, maybe working with the same model over and over, or at least a human face, right? Mm. But with landscape painting, there are so many variables. Um, not to mention, you know, foliage is a very tricky thing to handle. And you can see over the ages, it's been handled in so many different ways, right? Yeah, do you... Do you um, see that he's imposing order on chaos, or is, it, is that what's interesting to you That's, about if, it? So if you look at the painting, what's so remarkable about it, is you look in the, the foreground, has very strong Hudson River uh, elements to it. These the leaves detail. that are floating in a pond, exactly. the, the roots that are, that are, that are showing through the, the foliage. Yeah. Yeah, and you get you know, a couple of those dead leaves and just the delicacy with which they've been placed. As they go into that that water, the moss painted with almost a, hair, a three hair brush. Exactly, exactly. So that's very Hudson River school in my mind. But then, as you look at how it fuses back into space, and that's where all this magic happens. I think the the subtle value changes are just so they're so subtle when you get up close to it, you can't perceive them. They're only perceived at a distance. Uh, that's something that John Singer Sargent said. You got your half tones right if you you can't perceive it up close, only only a little further back. Hmm. Uh, and so that atmosphere there, in in my mind, very hard to see um, another painter. Um, I mean, there are maybe some examples here and there, but there's there's a delicacy and a and a treatment there that foreshadows, I think, uh, painters down the road. So um, let's talk a little bit about you. I want to come back to this idea of imposing structure and and how this same kind of imaginative leap he's made, arguably, shows up in your own work. You studied at BYU. Are you from? Where are you from? So originally, I I born in Oregon. Okay. My dad did his residency there, then came back here, and then basically lived here in Utah, in Bountiful. You grew uh, up in Bountiful? Grew up in Bountiful. I grew up in Bountiful, too. No kidding. I went to Mueller Park Junior High and Bountiful High School. Oh, no. I did, too. Did you really? Yeah. When did you graduate? We got some catch-up to do. <laughs> That's right. I graduated from high school in 97. You're kidding. No. I, I was in 95. Wow. We, we did have some overlap. Boy. That's Holy amazing. Cow. That is we'll amazing. Have to, we'll have to... Offline, we'll, we'll, we'll have, have to... We'll have to talk a little bit. Then how do you yeah. look younger than me? I don't know how that works out. <laughs> My dad's so, a dermatologist. Maybe he was my dermatologist. We'll have to find it out. So you, you grow up in Bountiful. We boy, we have more in common than I thought. We both live in Alpine now too. That's right. You um, you go to BYU, right? Did you show any? Uh, I remember in junior high, our, uh, our we would have had the same art teacher, 
use the word peachy keen to describe every great work of art that she okay. ever saw. Well, I, I, went I was to just hoping to meet an artist someday who still used that term to describe their works of art. That's great. But you, you, you go to BYU. Right. And, and what, what program do you under there? So I did, uh, well, I did a year and then I, I served a, a, an LDS mission to uh, M- Milan, Italy. Okay. Which is like the be- one of the best places. Terrific to place go to go. A, yeah. As an artist, right? Uh, then I came back. Home of Caravaggio. Exactly. Yeah. And so many. Th- so many. And so many. Yeah. So many other. So many great painters. Right yeah. Uh, so, at BYU, I I enrolled into the art program. So did you enroll in the studio side or the illustration side? The studio side. Okay. Yeah. Because there's a there's a distinction that's often made between between those two and the kinds of skill sets you walk away with. So Absolutely. what did you walk away with as a skill set from BYU? Well, I think. I had more of a conceptual framework because that's that was more of the focus, less on craft. Like, uh, you know, the study of light and things like that were not a huge focus. It's uh, not a traditional academy scenario not. where you're learning composition, tone, um, drapery, human figure, those kinds right. of things. It's very much, practical. Yeah, it's more of a cerebral uh, sort of um, exploration of certain values that maybe Mormon culture has or uh, it, it's much more into New York and and London and, and those kind of postmodern um, I don't we're not even in a postmodern era now I'm not sure what you'd call it at this point but uh, you know the avant-garde sort of thing but in a more in a reverential Mormon framework right which is kind of it's definitely an awkward fit but yeah, there, there, there is something oxymoronic about it, um, where they're in opposition to one another. But then again, you have people like, uh, like uh, S. Scott Fitzgerald, who said, the, the the test of a first class mind is to maintain two opposing thoughts in your brain at the same time and retain the ability to function. That's right. So maybe, That's maybe, right. so yeah. maybe it's just genius. Maybe it's the I ability guess. to That's to maintain right. the avant garde and a sense of of. Uh, humble, revelatory, hierarchical <laughs> values. Yes, that exactly. Go together. Yeah, no, I, I in that sense it uh it very stimulating, I I must say. Yeah. Uh, so then, you know, after BYU I I went to the Academy of Art University. In How did you learn about the Academy of Art? Cuz that's not the typical track, right? Right. How did you how did you go there? You know, and that's a that's a great story in and of itself. So, my mission president when I was finishing BYU, I was like, what am I going to do now? Cuz you know, a lot there's there's not a lot in terms of you know career wise was going on at the time here in Utah or anybody really even knowing about it mm. uh, what you do right I mean, once you get an art degree I mean what do you teach that's what most most people thought right. so I, you know I talked to my mission president about it and that was probably I mean it's really one of the most important things that I did because he said you know get you need to get out out of Utah go to one of the coasts. And um, I came back with a list of schools that uh, I, I thought these, these what you know, was I started list? researching. Academy of Art was uh, one of the, one. there's about 10 schools. There were either, there was one in Chicago, a couple in New York, and, and also- Rhode Island School of Design is probably on yeah, there. Yeah, it was on there, exactly. And then, um, you know, he, he's, he's, uh, he basically, you know, as a spiritual kind of thing said, you know, I have 
good feelings about these three schools on your list. So he was really a trusted counselor. Absolutely. Yeah. Good mentor, mentoring you through the process. Absolutely. Did you, did you know that you were most interested in landscape at this point? Well, I had, I had that interest. I'm, I'm kind of an outdoorsy sort of person. So, um, on that level and also traveling, I mean, that's kind of a, a thread as well. So I think more of a lifestyle thing, but that kind of consolidated when I moved to California, went to the Academy of Art, and um, and and it, it just I, I don't know it's just kind of in my soul really I, I I found I was less interested even though I you know studied in depth the human figure and all those things you know even the sculpture you know figure sculpture and stuff like that so you I, explored the the range absolutely yeah but I just found myself naturally gravitating towards that and I think probably. A lot of it has to do with my childhood. Um, best memories were out in the outdoors, fishing, hunting, those kinds of things, which I, you know, I don't hunt anymore because I, you know, I lived in California for all those years. <laughs> so not when not you live as, that close not to as, Berkeley, you know, yeah, <laughs> it just can't. it ruins all the fun. That yeah. and there's so many people there that you're inevitably going to hit somebody. Oh, yeah, right. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> no, so anyway, I no, don't have. I've traded any of that that kind of stuff more for the art side of things. But did you find yourself? This this is something I wonder about. It's it's almost like there's there's a zeitgeist wherever you go to school of what people are studying and what people are into. Yeah. And and it seems like there is right now a. a a resurgent interest in plein air landscape painting that I don't think we've seen anything like since two paints were invented in the, uh, in the, in the (laughs) second, the first quarter, second quarter of the 19th century by the English. Right. And, and I don't know what it is, but I imagine, and I know this kind of for a fact, because I know that you've been, you're in connection with a lot of the people who on a national and international level are at the forefront of this movement. You're one of them. I think that we can say that unquestionably, um, and and of some and, and a great stature in that environment. But I don't think it was that way when you were in school. No. And no. when you did choosing that would have I, I imagine gone against the grain, right? Absolutely. So that, so what was people? Why did you go against the grain? I know that <laughs> yes, being interested in hunting and the outdoors is one thing, yeah. but having to submit something successfully that gets you through school. Yeah. And proving it on an intellectual and skills level that passes muster with people who are going to judge you on the basis of what you're doing, that takes a whole nother kind of argument. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What did that look like? Well, I think uh, one of the things that was interesting about plain air at the time, uh, I, um, it'd be kind of interesting to, f- that's a great question, you know, going back through uh, my memory, um, you know, I look at, uh, taking, we we would do these excursions out there in the San Francisco Bay Area, and just so beautiful. Right. It's right? hard to find a more atmospherically beautiful oh my gosh. or that place city itself, with, right? With, with the depth of field, the kinds of colors, the yeah. the quality of lights that change from the morning to the. I mean, it's totally. It's an yeah, amazing place. It's kind of kind of in the air. Uh, but uh, one one thing. So there's a couple threads I'd like to tie in real quick. Yeah. Uh, one of them is. I had uh, some early training from Harold Olson. I don't know if you know who Harold I don't know is. Who, tell, tell Harold DeMont Olson is a painter here in Utah. And somehow we got, my mom found out about this and got, we got connected because I was interested in oil painting from an early age, you know, age of eight. 
And he was really into landscape because he learned from, he was kind of LeConte Stewart's protege. So here you've got, which is where we came from. We came from the Kaysville, exactly. Davis County area where exactly. LeConte is out every day and he painted over 10,000 works from right. a 1920s to the late 1980s. Yes. And so here- It was hard not to be influenced by him. Exactly. So I think a little bit of that, you know, I tra- or studied with this man, Harold Olson, um, He's I think he's in his late 80s now, uh, maybe early 90s. Um, anyway, uh, for three years during high school, privately with him. That's uh, unusual. So that was that was kind of an unusual experience. Uh, but then, um, are you, you know, actually going to Lacan's old haunts? Are you going out in fields? <laughs> you know, I I have done a number of uh, paintings of that whole area. You know, uh, I've got. I've seen over the years. We've had dozens of them that I've handled, hundreds. I'm of sure. Them I'm sure. I had one recently that had sand that was all stuck in the paint. Yeah. And on the back of it, it said, "Sorry, there was a windstorm." <laughs> yeah. Paints fall over <laughs> which, all the time. Which is like yeah. about as hardcore plain air as you can get. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. We we always we kind of joke that the bugs cost extra. <laughs> you, know, you know it's real when there's a mosquito doing the backstroke in the sky. You know. That stuck to the canvas. So I interrupted. You had a couple of strains you were going, though. Okay. So anyway, with uh, I remember seeing at BYU. So you know the whole experience there. I, I didn't feel alive when I was doing that kind of work, the intellectual side of it. Um, there's there's something about needing to be connected to, you know, the Earth, planet Earth, that has always drawn me for whatever reason. And I was going through all these books trying to figure out. You know, the art that I was doing there wasn't resonating. And then I remember seeing this painting by an early California painter in a in a book. Um, Do you remember who it was? And the name escapes me. Um, I, I should know it. Um, John Stern in Irvine Museum is going to kill me that I, I'm <laughs> drawing a blank. But we'll, uh, we'll it'll, add, come, it'll come back to me. Okay. But anyway, I remember seeing it, and I was just by, like transfixed by it, just blown away. The colors, the light. I'm like... You know, is anybody doing anything like this anymore? And by going to California, I was able to be exposed to the early California painters, like, uh, you know, William Went, Edgar Payne, all that stuff. I think that was a big part of, like, wow, there's, there's something here that's really resonating with me. Did, did you spend much time at the De Young Museum of Art while you were in San Francisco yeah, looking absolutely. at Bierstadt and Cole and some of the other yeah, artists and, that were there? Because that is... Arguably, the room that has the beer stats is the best room yeah. in the whole museum. Well, and there's the giant uh, Andes uh, yes. painting. Yes. Is it Thomas Cole, right, who went down? No, uh, no Moran. It's, Moran. Uh, no, it's not Moran. It's Friedrich Edwin Church. Church. There we How go. How could I forget Church? Yeah. And that's, that's, that's just who, an absolutely incredible painting. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it, yeah. it blew everybody away in the 19th century. Jerome famously w- thought it was the that 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 um church was maybe the greatest technician in the 19th century. Yeah, I and I would put him I would he was you know the, in some in some some parts of me thinks that was like an apex of landscape painting. You know in this world is history. this is a real question that I have not about necessarily it. that painting but church as a, his body of work. I this is something that I wonder about when it comes to your work. Um and I guess, you know, maybe maybe uh, 
I'm interrupting this, the streams you want to go on. Am I? Do you want to? Did you no, want to no, I'm, I'm okay to take is it. Is when whatever. I, I and I spent some time and mostly it's it's looking at your site, which is not a great way to look at art, especially right. oil paints, and also spending time with the exhibition Saints at Devil's Gate, which is at the Church Museum of History and Art, is it's deceptive, deceptively observational. Sure. And, and meaning that that you look at these scenes and they look they look like you captured. A particular moment and 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 I know and I, I don't want to repeat um, what's in the wonderful catalog that was done um, Laura Tato did an interview with you where you talk about going during different seasons and the process of going out there and I don't want to talk so much about you know the philosophy behind it but I do want to break down um, this idea of materials methods and techniques sure if you're Frederick Church he came from a generation of romantics and naturalists. Right. And the romantic side of him was interested in heightening nature to a level that was emotional and and not um, very realistic. But he had that really great balance of, of also being able to provide enough naturalistic environment that it did not feel manufactured. Right. And I don't know how he accomplished it. I don't know if it can be taught. Um, but I wonder in your own work, how much of it is purely observational? That's a, that's a great question. Well, I'd have to say in, in a lot of time, you know, I'm orchestrating a lot of things, yeah. moving things around, right? Which you have to, cause it's chaos. Yeah. It's absolute chaos. Absolute chaos. Yeah. And also I think we've know a lot more, or at least, um, you know, I'm a longtime student of neuroscience and what the mind can uh, buy without painting the rest of it. So mm-hmm. I think that has advanced quite a bit. Um, the mind has this ability to create a number of symbols and things like that. So how do you take advantage of that as an artist? So you can take advantage of it. How, yeah. do, you, how do you do that? Can you give me an example? <laughs> well, um, maybe it's not easily articulated. Maybe it's something that you... Well, you can... you can. Well, no, I mean, there are, there are things. I don't want to reveal all my secrets, but... There are, there are definitely ways you can direct the eye. Yeah. Um, you can you can uh, force it to do certain things because of um, so there is def- you colors. are you are doing a specific method this that you're thinking about. You're just this is <laughs> this is part of the secret sauce. Sure, sure. Okay, absolutely. I won't prod too much. Uh, the the greater the master, in my view, of you know a landscape painter or whatever, the more they are um, manipulating reality. And, and they're also able to make it feel even more real. So this this makes me wonder about something that I, I wanted to bring up um, when I looked at some of your work, because I it seemed with some of them there was a definite definite kind of um, subtle, subtle. I don't want to make it feel like it's, it's, it was heavy handed, but it seemed like there's a there's a definite kind of feeling imposed. Yes. In a work. Right. And feeling is a very metaphysical, soft term. I hate using it. But I immediately thought of Claude Lorraine. Claude Lorraine in the um, 17th century was a French artist who was doing a lot of work in Rome. Mm-hmm. And he became very popular at the turn of the 18th to the 19th century. And he was this classic kind of Italianate scenes where he would structure things a particular way. But one of the things they didn't realize was the science of aging of a piece would make pieces yellowed over time and flatten them quite a bit as a result of that yellowing. Mm-hmm. And it became a style to paint in. So they would give these, you could buy at an artist 
supply store, a colorman's place, along with your oils, what was called a clawed glass. And a clawed glass was a kind of ovoid mirror that you would place facing the place that you were interested in painting. And then you wouldn't face the place you were painting. You would face the clawed glass, which was yellowed. Interesting. Or atmosphered or some kind of like what we would call an Instagram antiqued. Yeah, look. Look, right? Right. Right. And the idea was the easiest way to impose structure on a scene through tone was to manufacture it through looking at a clawed glass rather than looking at the scene. Mm -hmm. And I don't think when I looked at your work that there was one clawed glass filter (laughs) <laughs> right, which yeah. which um, is not what I'm here to say, and I'm not trying to say that you use the clot glass in any way. Right, but it does seem like there is a kind of deliberate choice to to um, take a scene that is otherwise chaotic and bring order to it. Right, and I don't know how you're doing it. I know there's a secret sauce element to it. Yeah, but I I want you to talk through. Is that important? Am I right, first of all? And is and how do you go about this? I think is probably one of the greatest challenges of being a, a landscape painter. Sure. How do you create a sense of order? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think there is a, of course, you know, like Lorraine and, and others, they'd use a, uh, you know, the golden section or dynamic symmetry, uh, and there are certain aspects of that that I also use, um, but on a. Um, Part of it's intuitive because I've done it so much. Uh, so if you look at things that have been discovered, like fractals of how a rock cracks and, and it looks natural, these are things that um, have to be learned. They cannot, they're not native to our, we're not born with it. That's a Hudson River approach, too, when you're looking at how a rock's cracked in a fractal. Exactly. If yeah, they were so, around today, they'd be looking at that. Yeah, <laughs> that absolutely true. Uh, but I think it's become a little bit more, less mysterious and more sophisticated uh, in terms of uh, mathematics, computer data, and stuff like that. Um, so I'm I'm very much a person of my time, even though maybe somebody would initially look at one of my scenes and say, you know, this has a kind of a, a feel of you know 100 years ago or something like that. Do Definitely, people do that to you? Uh, occasionally, you know, most people don't know enough to even make that comparison, right? Right. Uh, so um, there are certain ways of how things are divided uh, is something that's a very part of nature, division, spatial division. Uh, and that is something that I think continues to become more and more sophisticated over time. So it's almost like a continuation of the Renaissance idea of we're going to push this art further with each generation as our knowledge grows. We're going to keep yeah. adding to that. And do you see yourself as part of, you know, a, a continuation of, of, a, of a kind of traditional approach? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. When but you describe your work to people, how do you describe it? Well, um, traditional, definitely I have this, this honor of, of the tradition. Um, but I also am using things that have never been used in painting in the past. So I have tools that I use to make marks that aren't were never used before because those materials didn't exist at that time. So can can you say what those are, um, or describe what you mean by that? They um, they're well. I'm I'm careful about those. You know, talking about those tools, but I'm 
we talk about different synthetic materials. Um, Just out of curiosity, why yeah. are you careful? Not that I'm saying it's bad <laughs> or good, but but is is it is there really a, a sense of um, you know Rembrandt's day? It was even though he was contractually obligated to show his apprentices how he finished his etchings, right. he was sued multiple times not for doing it, right. for not doing it because he he yeah it was his it was his secret sauce, and there was a reason why, and it's because everybody was competing at that time for a certain depth of field. Yes. In in those etchings. Right. So what is the atmosphere today that makes you feel some that feel the need to be somewhat guarded? Well, I think I, I think for the for the most part I'm 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 quite open, I yeah. guess. Well you teach on a regular basis. Yeah. I imagine you'd have to be. Right. right. Right? Right. But there are some things you talk about and there's some things you don't. Right. And I'm not trying to get you to reveal those things, but no, I do want to no. know, you know, is 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 there just a is it that lively today? Well, I, I think in part because we are so in a lot of ways, I'm very transparent because I'm on social media, you know, every day posting things, posting paintings that are half done and and yeah. stuff like that. And I know that there's a lot of cross pollination going on, and which is great. You know, I've benefited from that just as much as anybody else, right? Um, my style's been copied, um, you know, by various artists at various times, and, and when you've so, been distributed as as much as you have through. Right. magazines and so forth, I assume that you're going to have a lot of admirers who are going to do that consciously and subconsciously. Sure, sure. And, yeah. and so, but that's not to say, you know, I haven't done that too of other artists, you know, like Picasso famously saying, you know, artists don't, uh, they don't they borrow, don't borrow they, steal. they steal. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, so, so there's a certain amount of that too. Uh, but anyway, I just use materials other than just using like brushes and palette knife, right? Right. There are other things that you can use. And um, again, I look at also the digital age of how, um, uh, you know, you look at your latest blockbuster movie and, and the incredible amount of uh, new technology can make images that were impossible beforehand. So I, I'm also influenced by that as well. Hmm. So walk me through, walk me through maybe an easier way to, for me to get to, to this. And I guess what I'm going after too is, Walk me through soup to nuts, uh, your general process okay, of how you sure. how you make a work. I know sure. when I went to the exhibition at, yeah. at the church, one of the things I loved about it was we did see some of the study process. Exactly. So yeah. talk, walk me through it. Yeah. So w with the studies, uh, it's a very um, kind of shoot from the hip. It's like a jazz player in a way. You are um, improvising right at the moment, you know, when you're painting these, uh, studio or a field, little small field paintings. Are you doing them in graphite like a premier pense? Or are you like the French would do in the Academy? Straight, straight to oil, straight, straight to oil. Exactly. And you're, yeah. are, and you're worried about tones and yeah, you're trying to, to, uh, get that certain mood that you're seeing right at the moment, that time of day, that type of light, uh, you know, and over the years I've gotten pretty, pretty darn good at, I can nail Whatever the mood is, rainy. It's, it could be the middle of the night. Whatever time of day, uh, I've and that took time. Absolutely, and you a ton look at the time. difference between the way that you are now from that time versus where yeah. you were back when you were doing it yeah. in high school as a senior. Right. You can see it, and you can reproduce that feel. Right. Okay. So color is, um, you know, if you looked at my paintings, I've got thousands of different color schemes, mostly based on nature. Um, Re just recently, I've actually started manipulating those a little bit more. Uh, in the in the Saints of Devil's Gate show, it's to to some degree I 
there are places when I've been very faithful and other places where I've, where I've not for various reasons in order to orchestrate a mood. Uh, but, uh, you know, color value, those things are all, uh, it takes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of, of just working on that and comparing with nature. And so you so. can't, you can't possibly hope to, if you're getting that, that feel of a sunset, you can't possibly hope to do that all in the moment on the scene. You capture something in the moment. Right. And do you then take it to the studio? Yeah. And then I'll do a, a larger, more finished piece. So like the, the very large painting in the show, uh, Evening of the Sweetwater, it's a 72 inch by 90 inch Beautiful painting. piece. Huge painting. And nor I think it's the so, biggest one of the show. It's biggest one of the show. Beautiful. Right. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, a piece like that, you know, I did a small eight by 10 on location for that painting. Uh, and then, you know, taking those, I did a, actually a mid-size painting of it first to kind of work out a lot of issues, then went to a larger, a larger painting at that this point. Is, this is pretty academic in its approach. It is. Yeah. It, it if is. you had done it as a, um, as a 19th century artist, they would have famously remember the old saying was that you just do it on a cigar box top, which is roughly a five by seven. Right. And then you would have, you would have done, you know, a, a grisaille almost, and in, in one stage of it, in order to get composition down. Right. What are, What are your um, see I mean, to work by an eight by ten and then do a middle work? How much does it change over that process? Uh, it 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 changes quite a bit with each iteration. Uh, as you're, I think you have, like that little one little stroke that was a bush now is uh, you know 10 inches square. Yeah. And so you have to completely redesign it when you scale it up. You can't just fill in pixels, you know. It, right. It's, it's, it's yeah, an entirely different animal. Yeah. I, I really think that's what separates um, the good painters from great painters is a, in landscape, uh, and maybe in general, I don't know, is the large work. Like Really? Is being able to scale up. I think it's why infinitely is, harder. Why is that? It is, uh, there's so much more room for error. And uh, those those small areas, like I said, that can be treated in a very easy sort of way on a small scale painting have to um, not only be very interesting, yeah. but then have to fit in the larger context. And I think a lot of paintings, a lot of big landscape paintings get very busy uh, and and I would say if there's any criticism I could make of the Hudson River School in general is their work suffers from busyness. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the problem when you paint what you see a lot of the time. Absolutely. One of th so much this, editing has to go on. This begs and excuse the academic in me that, that just can't help but, but comment and want to ask this is, and I know it has to exist, I spent most of my time in research talking about how the academy from the 17th to the late 19th century um, organized and taught its classes. And there are rules for figure painters and doing multi-figural narratives in order to overcome that kind of confusion. Mm -hmm. So they have things like always group figures in threes, most important figure in the brightest light near the center, or on one of the lines of the, uh, uh, of the uh, golden mean, right, if you're, if you're structuring it. Right. And um, and uh, don't uh, and if you're gonna have a bunch of figures together, make sure they overlap and alternate clothing styles and colors in order to distinguish between body parts of different figures. Those kinds of things, right? Right. 
as a landscape painter, you were clearly making those same kinds of choices. It Absolutely. doesn't matter. Same things apply whether you're doing figure work or landscape work, or even if you're, you know, doing a really good abstract painting, you have to take into account darks, lights, drawing an eye around the canvas with a particular right. way. So, so for example, uh, you know, Whistler always lamented about the, the foreground in a, in a painting. So the Hudson River School solved the foreground problem, which is you know, too much contrast, so they'd always put a shadow in front of the foreground, right? Uh, that's one solution. There's, now there's multiple different solutions that have been invented in order to get past the foreground problem. Does anyone do a great job cataloging these things, or is something you learn from mentor to student? Mentor to student, yeah. I mean, does somebody need to create a catalog? Of, <laughs> it would be great. Because I, I mean, part of me resists that. Because I think that you know you don't want paintings to start all looking alike. There's right. that famous statement by Eng, who was the uh, professor at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris and in Rome, mm -hmm. who said, for every 1,000 artists we train, we get 999 copyists and one artist. Right. And that's because a lot of them you know, just followed the rules. Right. But if you don't know the rules... If you don't know your notes, you can't play Bach. And if you can't yeah. play just the notes, then you can't be an expressive yeah. person. And, and I and hear you talking about, and more than I ever than I thought you would going into this discussion, about very practical lessons learned that in their aggregate constitute an arsenal. Right, right. That is not just felt. It's something that That's been is studied. earned. Right. So I definitely have a very um, cerebral side to my work. And, and I think part of that is because of my teaching experience of being able to articulate very precisely why something works, why it doesn't, the physics of the light and all that. When but, did you start teaching? Uh, before I graduated with my master's at the academy. Did the teaching accelerate your own work? I, th I believe so, absolutely. Yeah, because as I was trying to explain to somebody, you know, they'd come up with a question, and it it caused me to reflect deeper. Um, you know, how how do I describe very simply how this thing works? Yeah. Uh, and so that I think made me a better painter because it intuitive things became uh, not just subconscious but conscious as well. So we're getting we're running out of time, sure. and there are a couple of things I want to ask you before we and they they're they're going to be a switch in subject a little bit. Okay, but I don't want to go without bringing them up. You know, we we come as Vern Swanson was the director of the Springville Museum of Art for twenty five years, um, which for all intents and purposes is the home of contemporary art in Utah, right? Um, and regionally, um, been doing for ninety six years their annual salon. He once told me that there are um, 15 to 25,000 contemporary artists working today in the region. I don't know how he defines that. Wow. And he said 80% of them are landscape painters. <laughs> right? Yeah. Does that number feel right to you, first of all? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. There are so, quite a few. That's, and I don't, that's I don't know how he qualified painter. I don't yeah. know how he qualified region. Uh -huh. it's, I, don't, I don't know if he would qualify them. Yeah. But he almost always talked about... The reason why is because um, because of John Hafen. And he'd point back to John Hafen and he'd say, John Hafen was one of the Paris art missionaries, returns to Utah, and 
didn't paint as much as a lot of other landscape artists, but he talked about the landscape in what he felt like Vern did a uniquely spiritual way. Hmm. He talked about landscape as an almost spiritual medium because of, you know, well, I won't, I won't say what he said because I'm interested at the very beginning you talked a little bit about the spiritual element of landscape. And I know your audience isn't, ex isn't exclusively within this community. Your audience, right. you know, the Mormon audience probably doesn't even know you as well right. as the larger world audience. That's, that's true. Yeah. But, and, and you don't have to answer if you want to, but is there a spiritual element to the landscape that, that like John Hafen is, you know, it's part of, part of the reason behind some of the things you do. Well, I, I definitely think there is um, there's a spiritual side to it, whether you approach it from a naturalist or, or like a John Muir sort of way, or almost from like a, it's the sublime. Yeah, the sublime. There's also this sense, I think, in Mormon theology, where you have an Adam on Diamond, like or Zion, the Promised Land. Um, so there's definitely uh, this tie to the land I think that's very um, a new Jerusalem you know those, all those kinds of kinds of things um, and part of it I think is because they were cast out and they ha became their own kind of community unto themselves and so there's this really strong identity uh, location identity as well as a uh, maybe a spiritual identity so I think that that's definitely part of it the other thing is Utah uh, the Mormons inherited an incredibly beautiful, chunk of land yeah. uh you know one thing that drew me back here is it, utah is one of the most beautiful you know it really is one of the most beautiful places it's on hard the to appreciate it until you leave and hear it from other people and yeah. then you come back to it yeah i mean you just see the diversity the red rock the you know mountains uh desert part uh they're, they're just it, it's so so diverse uh so you know when i was looking at moving back from the bay area which we were there for uh, about 15 years and uh, I mean, that's an amazing place, right? Uh, this was, you know, there's some places I just couldn't live just because it wasn't visually stimulating enough. Uh, and so we kind of, I guess, found our way back because of kind of that tie to the land in, in a lot of ways. Has it been, uh, did, you, did you come back, what's the, uh, the quote, only to rediscover it as a new place for yourself? Did I think it, so. I I'm think sure you came back. You've got, you've got kids. You had family here, probably. Yeah. It wasn't like you were absent for 15 years entirely. Right. But you came back, and but do we, you look at it through different eyes? Absolutely. I have a, a completely different uh, pair of eyes, I think, on an intellectual level, uh, spiritually, um, just life experience, you know, having traveled the world. Uh, it's, it's definitely um, an entirely different experience here. I, I don't want to lose this either, and you you just pointed to it. I know we're not going to be able to do it entirely justice, but I feel like if we left it out, it'd be a worse sin. Okay, <laughs> and, sure. And that's you've you have traveled the world quite a bit, and a, a a theme of a lot of your most recent paintings, at least as far as I can tell, has been travels to Asia. Correct. Why Asia? Why China? Uh, I I need that visual kind of. It's so different. It's just a completely foreign. Uh, a place uh, that's one one thing the other thing is as the world is rapidly changing and things are disappearing uh, I do have some 
and, and this is not necessarily a popular thing in Utah per se. I, I'm not trying to make a political statement here at all, but uh, the climate and, uh, you know, pollution and, you know, the old ways of life being destroyed. Um, I'm kind of, in a way, I feel like a, I'm documenting some of this. There's stuff. a bit of, of, of uh, contemporary anthropology going on where Absolutely. you're capturing something before it disappears. Yeah, that's why... I, I just, my most recent trip was to Cuba. As soon as that was open, I was looking on, you know, plane tickets to to head down there and find a time to go. So is this, is this going to be something from the near future that you're going to, you're going to be traveling from place to place? Absolutely. Yeah. What's on your list? <laughs> or maybe you don't want to tell us. No, maybe no, we'll be surprised. Sure. Yeah. And that's I mean, okay too. I, well, definitely Asia is, you know, going back to China it's such a big country. I saw such a small part of it. But I actually kind of like to do, uh, I like to really digest uh, a small area. It's not, I don't like to, like, let's go see the Great Wall, then let's go see this and that and the other. Um, I want to um, really kind of get into an area and get to know, like, make friends, you know. that That's an important part of it. Uh, so... Um, that's, so it may, that's definitely, the, it may be that you go once you find that place in China, you're going to keep going back to that one. That it place. could be, yeah. Or but at least you know, spending a month in one area can help me, you know, get to know that. So that's definitely part of it. Also, I think a lot of things are going on uh, in South America as well that is very interesting uh, to me. Um, so that's definitely part of part of it. Uh, and you know, there's other other exotic locations that I think will be interesting to Madagascar, Africa. You know, other, you know, that kind of stuff as well is interesting to me. Boy, you know how to how to keep somebody looking at your website on a regular basis. <laughs> That's right. Work. I try and keep it uh, uh, keep a mix there. Well, I I feel like we just barely touched on so many things that that. Uh, we could go and do a lot more depth on and hopefully we have another chance to do it. At the very least, you and I need to compare yearbooks. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for for coming today, Brian. It was it was a real privilege. My, to my pleasure to speak with you. And I know I caught you right before you're going on another trip. So, uh, so we look forward to seeing what you do next. All right. Well, thank you. I'd like to thank Brian Mark Taylor for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see the works we discussed on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab, along with information about Brian Mark Taylor's own work. For more interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening.